meeting friends. We are doing things a little differently as you've already picked up throughout this service if you're normally online and if you're normally in person you know we're doing things very differently because we're all online today. We've had some bugs or, or something like that going around our congregation and here we are online to let everyone recover and also to keep those of you who are healthy continuing to be healthy. So it's not exactly what we want, and yet we have joy even in this because we can still be together. We have technology to do so. And that's part of what it looks like to be citizens of God's kingdom, citizens of joy, is that we, we see how God is working even in the circumstances that aren't quite how we want. And we're going to be thinking about how we do that, how we look to where God is taking us rather than where we are at the moment today. And as we prepare to do that, let's go ahead and come before our God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening and for these friends that we can gather together, we can worship you, that even on a day that we find ourselves online only, that you provide us with the means to be together as the body of Christ. And as we look at your word, would you help us to see what you would have us to see in it, to be comforted by it, to be directed by it, to be encouraged by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're thinking about the kingdom to come. It's the wrap-up of this series and, and thinking about where we're going. But right now we live in the now. We live in a world that feels broken. We understand broken things. We have things around the house break down. Maybe you've had a washer, a dryer, or oven. Something breaks down. And of course you can call someone and try to have them fix it. You can go and buy a new one. Or you might decide... Ah, today is the day I'm going to prove that I know how to repair things. I'm going to fix it. It's hard for me to even imagine decades ago how we'd go about this. How did we survive? But today we have this wonderful modern miracle of YouTube that we can go on to. And it seems like you can type in literally anything and find someone who's put together a repair guide. And oftentimes those repair guides are very good. They they go through and they have prompts. Here's where you're going to need these parts. Here's where you're going to want to pause. Here's where you should be aware. It's really great. If you've ever done some kind of repair and used YouTube, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes it is up front. This is going to be really hard. I remember with my car battery, it said, this is going to be really hard because this car's battery is in a really awkward spot. Sometimes, though, you're, you're watching one of those videos and you you get partway through it and then it jumps and it, a whole bunch of stuff that you're stuck on. The parts that are, are hardest, perhaps, it seems like, at least to, to the untrained person, it just kind of assumed you knew what to do. And it sort of, well, now what? I don't know, even know where to look. I don't even know what to do next. I, I'm stuck. It's broken here and I don't know where to go. Sometimes that's how we feel like it is, I think, in the Christian life. We feel like... We know where it's supposed to be ultimately, but we don't know where to look right now. Where do we look in this broken world when we're told that we should be citizens of the kingdom? The kingdom doesn't feel like it's very present. It feels like the world is just broken. And Paul wants us to think about that so that we know exactly where to look when we get to those points and we say, I don't know where next to go on this guide. It feels like the YouTube video just skipped over what I really need. That's what he's talking about in verse 17. So let's go ahead and turn there, Philippians 3, 17. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
for many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul begins where he's leading us by saying, here's where you need to look. Here's the next step. And the next step is to look to Paul and other believers. Now, I think sometimes we see this and we think, Paul, it sounds kind of like you're full of yourself. You're saying, imitate me. You're a sinful man like all of us. You've admitted as much. Why should we imitate you? But but note here, Paul doesn't say merely to imitate him. He says to imitate him, but also keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, the other believers. Now, that's not saying that any of the believers were perfect. It certainly wasn't saying that Paul was perfect. But rather, as we find ourselves as those who are less mature, we should look to those who are more mature in Christ. We we look to each other. And sometimes that might be a, a thing that moves back and forth. Sometimes we're kind of in an immature moment and we need to look to someone else. They might be younger than us chronologically. They might even be a newer believer than us, but God's working in them. A lot of times it does mean looking to someone who's been following Jesus for longer. But the key thing is we we look to each other and we look to those who are at this moment having God's word and his calling for our lives applied more clearly in their lives and looking to them when we're thinking, I I don't know what to do next. It's one of the big things we're called to do as Christians is be an example to each other and to the world. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says in verse 32, Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Same kind of call, but note why he says he does it. He does it for the benefit of those who can be saved by seeing what's happening in his life seeing that he's not doing it for his own advantage, and then getting to know the one he's doing it for, Jesus. That's what we need to ask ourselves as we're going throughout life is, why am I doing the things I'm doing? And who am I looking to for an example of how I'm going to live? And if you say, well, I'm looking to someone who I think is an older believer or more mature believer, what may be, we also need to ask, well, whom are they looking to? Notice there's a, a, a link here. There's a set of chains. Paul is is look, saying they should look to others, but those others should be looking to the apostles. And of course, the apostles are looking to Jesus. And that's what we need to do. We don't want to just follow anyone. We want to follow those who are following Jesus. Be mentored by people who, who have been through the things we've been through or we're going through. So we need to be careful whom it is that we follow. And we need to be careful whom it is that we're uh, presenting ourselves to and how we're presenting ourselves to them that, that if they seek to follow us, thinking that we're an example of Christ, that we're showing what it really looks like. 
we get too fixed on earthly things and we get too fixed on our own advantage, we may quit looking to others who are encouraging us to be more faithful because we don't really want to go where they're going. And we can also hurt those who are finding their inspiration in us because they start to follow us in our worldly ways rather than in the ways of God. Some look to earthly things, some look to heavenly things. Where are we looking? And where are those whom we look to looking? We need to know these things. And Paul goes on here to say, some are going to look at earthly things. Some even in the church are looking at earthly things. But we need to understand those things will disappoint. Take a look at verse 18. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. You see, there are many, and, and Paul appears here, pretty much everyone seems to agree, Paul's talking about people who claim to be Christians, or in the church. Maybe they're not locals of Philippi, but they've traveled in and they say, hi, I'm a Christian leader, you should listen to what I have to say, here's the things you need to do. And he says, these people that you're thinking about following, beware of them, because they're looking for earthly glory, earthly pleasures, earthly benefit, self-advantage, rather than kingdom advantage. Now, some of these people probably thought they were faithful, but but what are they doing? He says their 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 God is their belly. They're they're looking to what's going to fill them up. Their whatever their appetites are, whatever it would bring seem to be that would bring them pleasure in the moment, joy in the moment. Um, whatever would make them happy, not what makes God happy. And I think in that, what we learn about these people is even if they're calling people to follow them, they're not really worried about the example they're they're giving to others. They're only worried about themselves. And if others become only worried about themselves too, who cares? Because they just want what they want for themselves and they want it right now. They want to live as citizens of privilege in the moment rather than looking to the the benefits, the joy, the privilege of being citizens of heaven that's often delayed. Take a look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What are we doing? Are the things we're doing things that will bring those who don't already know Jesus to want to know Jesus? Is that what drives us? Are we looking for our own advantage, our own benefit, our own power, our own protection? Those are things that we naturally do in the flesh. The things that our society says we should do. Are we saying those things pale in comparison to the glory of God and to his kingdom? Who cares what happens to myself? I want what God wants. I want his kingdom to progress. I want people, even if they'll step on me in the process, to know Jesus. Where am I looking? Am I looking for that immediate benefit or a future benefit? I was was reading a a story this past week. I thought it was kind of interesting. It's about a, a online shoe merchant called... Zeta Kicks. I'd never heard of it, but apparently it was around for a decade or so. And I, I guess it did an okay business. It, it sold all kinds of collector, collectible sneakers and, and and such from 
big name brands and was doing apparently well enough to keep going and, and the founder seemed to be doing quite well with it. But something went wrong about two years ago. Somewhere in that, he decided he wanted to make more money. He didn't want a business that was stable and growing and would last for who for perhaps his whole life. He wanted a business that was going to make him rich, where he could buy fancy cars, where he could buy big houses, where he could really prosper in a way that apparently he hadn't yet. And so what he started to do was advertise that he could take pre-orders for these really exclusive sneakers that were being released by companies like Nike and that you could pay him the money up front and he would get these shoes that were incredibly hard to obtain and he'd get them for you. Now, the thing is, a respectable, honest merchant, even if he does such a thing, will know, well, I can only get a certain number of shoes. I can get 300, I can get 500, I can get 1,000, and they sell that many and they quit selling. Well, he sold 600,000 plus of these high in demand, very hard to obtain shoes when it looks like, practically speaking, he only had hopes of maybe getting 6,000. He was selling a hundred times more shoes than he was ever going to have in his possession. And why was he doing it? Well, because he was getting the money up front and he started living a very, very comfortable, beyond comfortable lifestyle because... He had all this money, and when the shoes wouldn't come, he'd find ways to stall and delay or promise someone a future shoe or promise them credit for the store, somehow pushing off the reckoning for the fact that he couldn't provide these shoes people had paid for. It's been called the Bernie Madoff of, of sneakers now because he'd built this essentially pyramid scheme where people kept pouring in money to use a little of it to put out enough shoes to seem to still be respectable while having all these customers that didn't know about all the other customers who are irate not getting their shoes. And the, and the big thing I find myself asking in this is why did he give up on a business that had been going for years and turn it into this scam that ultimately has now led him and it appears also his girlfriend to end up being imprisoned for, for fraud? Why did he cut corners to get this immediate result of way more money when he already had something good going? Well, we should ask ourselves the same question. Because why do we cut corners in the Christian life? Why do we do it so we can get the immediate result and God says something far greater is coming if we just keep looking to him. And he provides the examples of the body of Christ, the others around us, that we can look to for encouragement so that in the moment when we get to that next step and we're not sure where to go, we can look to other believers. Now, sometimes we cut corners because, unfortunately, and this is something that is a painful thing to say about us as the church, we as a whole in the church are doing such a bad job of keeping our eyes heavenward focused that we're encouraging other people to cut corners around us. And we should be convicted of that and we should repent of that and we should try to do better. But it's also something that speaks to us individually. Why do we cut corners in our own lives when oftentimes God has provided us with encouraging examples that don't? He certainly provided us with the encouraging example in himself coming incarnate, the Son of God, on this earth and not cutting any corners. And Paul says here, when you feed that belly, when that's what you think is what's going to make you happy, it's going to lead to your destruction, not to your joy. I love this quote from Mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis so eloquently summed this all up in years ago. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. It seems like a strange rule, but something like it can be seen at work in other matters. Health is a great blessing, but 
The moment you make health one of your main direct objects, you start becoming a crank and imagining there is something wrong with you. And he goes on to talk about how on various good things that we can focus on, if we become fixated, that's the thing I want, we end up feeling like we're not getting it. We do. We, we think, oh, I'm going to be healthy. And so we start imagining everything wrong with us. And we spend more and more time trying to be healthy. And we lose all the joy that we thought we were going to have because we thought we were going to be healthy. That's how we do it with the earth in general. We say, I want the joy of earth. I want to enjoy this earth. I want the pleasures and benefits and, and luxuries of this earth. And, and we start to cut corners to get those right now. We take our eyes off the heavenly ball and it ends up being that we get some illusory momentary happiness maybe, but generally end up being pretty unhappy. We lose what's lasting. But here's the thing, as, as we put our eyes instead on what Jesus is doing, even in the pain, even in the suffering, even in the times that we actually suffer for Jesus, we have an opportunity to enjoy even the earth more because we see what God's doing in it and we see who it is that's giving us the blessings we do have and so we have the right perspective in the moment on the things that we do enjoy. Paul goes on in verse 20. Excuse me, Peter goes on in verse 20 of Second of 1 Peter 2. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, I took my, my eyes off the ball of what was next for a moment there, and I mentioned the wrong book. And we do that in our lives constantly. We, we take our eyes off the ball. We're thinking about something else. Where am I going next? And we lose what God's placed right in front of us to do. Peter did that a lot. And that's why I think it's helpful to look at that quote. We think about Peter's life. There are all kinds of examples of when Peter would take his eye off the heavenly ball and he was looking at, well, how do I gain earthly power in the moment? How do I gain earthly comfort in the moment? How do I gain importance in the moment? But what's significant here is towards the end of Peter's life, as he's writing this, he says, don't do those things and don't think that it's all about being comfortable. If Jesus suffered, then we are going to suffer too. But, but we know what's coming because we know what Jesus has accomplished for us. And that's far better than anything that we're going to find. Far better than what any earthly ruler, any earthly leader, any earthly inspirational speaker, any inspirational self-help book, anything that we can find can possibly promise. It's better than what we can do when we use our wits to somehow pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps. None of those things are ultimately going to satisfy, but Jesus will. And that's what we see time and again in scripture by, by people who are going through a lot more suffering than most of us will ever go through. But they know exactly where they're going. They're not losing the step in the, the DIY instructions. They realize it's not even DIY. It's do it God, it's D-I-G, because he's the one that's doing it. And if we look to him, we're going to experience great joy. Something's going to feel distant. But that's not necessarily unusual. Here's a picture, actually, that, that the Philippians would have gotten maybe more clearly than we do, but we need to understand something about Philippi. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony, and so Philippi was a place where citizens of that city gained Roman citizenship. They were technically citizens of Rome, even though they were far away. So they were in this 
distant frontier, so to speak, and yet they were really meant to think of themselves as if they were in the capital. Not everyone in the Roman Empire, most people in the Roman Empire, didn't even have Roman citizenship with all the benefits. But as Paul's writing the Philippians, at least some of them had this privilege of representing the, the capital of the most powerful empire in the world to the world around them. And so when Paul's talking about citizenship, this is the sort of thing that's going to be ringing in their head. Now, they weren't living in Rome. Maybe they would get to move to Rome someday and experience the fullness of where they were citizens. Maybe they wouldn't. But in the moment, the Roman Empire certainly expected them live as those worthy of that title, live as a Roman citizen. And they did. They, we, we have records of the Philippians. They were proud of this. This was something that was important to them. They, they knew that even though they were in Philippi, they were far away. They belonged to that city, that important city. What Paul is saying to them now is, one-up that. You belong not to, to just the most important city in the world. You belong to the most important city anywhere, the city of heaven. You belong to God's kingdom. And just as those people understood they should represent Rome well, how much more they should represent God well. And that means sometimes doing things while waiting for the experience of joy because we haven't yet got to travel to that wonderful city that we know we belong to. I think we understand this, really. There are plenty of times where we're representing something. Maybe it's our company, our school. Maybe it's our country as we travel abroad, whatever it might be. And we, we know, we feel that way. I am representing something more than me. But do we live every day feeling like that in relationship to God? Because whatever else we might ever represent in life, that's what matters most. It's true of us that, that we are those representing a city yet to come and yet already there. Rome existed, they just hadn't experienced it yet. But they belonged to it. And we belong to the citizen, to the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. As he reflects on, on the faithful throughout scripture, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them for, prepared for them a city. He's prepared for you and for me a city too. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is making there, that this isn't something that only happened for some people in the past. It's true now. And so when we look at all the faithful saints in Scripture who only saw a part of what God had promised, Abraham didn't see the fulfillment of it. David didn't see the fulfillment of it. The apostles didn't see the fulfillment of it completely. They, they saw Jesus, and yet they were still waiting for his return. And so too are we, but we know where that greater city is. We're citizens of a, a great, great city, the greatest city. And we wait. Kingdom work is slow. But as Peter says, it's worth it. At the end of his second letter, the last communication we have from him, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Sometimes God has us wait so that we can grow and be prepared for that city. Sometimes he's placing us in that time of waiting so that others can see us and us 
an hour following of Jesus and come to be part of that wonderful city themselves. We think, but I want, I want it now. I want to experience that joy now. And, and yet this apostle who very much wanted to experience things right now throughout his life had realized at the end of his life, no, we wait. God's not slow. God is patient. He's patient with you. He's patient with me. And so we prepare, we plant seeds. God uses us to encourage people towards the kingdom. We need to be patient as well. Sometimes we're not very good at that. I have this little Christmas tree in a box here. I've had it actually for a number of years. And and all you need to do is plant the seeds and, and water them. And, and I suppose if you did it about now, or maybe maybe it should have already been done now for the year, you'd have a nice little Christmas tree at Christmas time. The problem is, when I see the box, I think I want the Christmas tree now because it's Christmas time. I'm not thinking of a Christmas tree in June or July or August or September. And so this box has been here. I'm not even sure now if it would sprout because it's gotten put off so many times because I'm not really patient. And and maybe what I should do is even if it's Christmas time, I should say, well, I should plant this so next year I could enjoy that. God calls us to be thinking in that sort of long-term mindset in our lives and in the kingdom. Sometimes we need to plant the seed and we wait. And when we say instead, well, I think I'll just set this down and find something I can experience right now. I'll set aside what God has promised to me because I want something that's already sprouted and grown and I can touch and feel and it's real and it's now. This tree that was packaged in here is just as real as any other tree. It just needed me to do something. And God's calling us to do something. And we may not experience the fullness of the fruit of that, even in our lives, but we know we will experience it if we trust in Jesus. It's the whole idea that Lewis was talking about. We aim for heaven and we we get some of the benefits of the earth, maybe not all the ones that we want in the moment, but we get something better. But if we aim for for earthly happiness, we're going to find that doesn't really lead to happiness. And we've missed out on heaven too. When we hold on to the heaven to come, we represent it to those right now and we get to experience being citizens of joy right now. That's far better than anything else we could hold on to. So may we be that today and every day. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, so often we think that you're just moving slow. We wonder why why aren't there the blessings right now? Why isn't there contentment right now? We want it all to come together, and we don't understand waiting. We don't understand preparation. We don't want a box with a seed and a promise. We want a fully sprouted tree. And yet you've called us to be gardeners, to be planters, to be those who who keep our eye on where you're taking us, and in, in that are willing to join in your patience, the patience that you've shown to us to wait on us as we grow. Then you call us to, to live faithfully according to so that others might start to grow as well. Lord, would you use us? Would you assure us when we have doubts, we wonder, has the Lord forgotten us that that you haven't? Would you help us to tend the garden you've placed before us as those who are called to be faithful, good representatives of the kingdom of heaven? That more might be citizens of joy through the way that you use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a hard wait, and we feel weak, and we feel shaken, and we, we wonder, how, how do we do it? 
It's why the Lord's given us his supper, why he's invited us to the table, that we can come to it. And, and when we feel all those things and we don't understand what's going on, we come and we're reminded of the one who does, who received everything wrong, everything that shouldn't have come to him. We, we have some things come to us that feel like they shouldn't happen, but but we know we're fall, flawed and broken. But Jesus didn't deserve anything to go wrong. And yet, what happened? He took on what we deserved. And he allowed himself to be broken and to be poured out for us that, that we might receive, ultimately, the true joy of heavenly citizenship. And so it is that if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you're invited to this table to be nourished, to be reminded of what Jesus has done, to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that we can show the sort of patience that God has shown to us. Now, if you haven't trusted him, if you haven't claimed that heavenly citizenship, then please don't take these elements today. But claim that citizenship today. If you, if you think about what I'm talking about, you say, I want a part in this, then come before the Lord and confess your sins and recognize that he's willing to forgive you and show that patience to you right now. He'll do it for each and every one of us. And then come next week and take. And for those who have trusted, know that as we take these things, he gives them to us knowing that, that we struggle to be patient in the, the tumult of life. And yet it is on the night they was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner after supper, he took the cup and he poured it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you unto the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. As Paul reflects on this, he says, as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because we look to that heavenly kingdom. We know he will come. And so now as we prepare to take these elements, know that they are signs of your citizenship, of the promise and the faithfulness of God. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you take these elements and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would communicate the benefits of, of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. That we might be nourished for the times of waiting and the times of joy. That we might be reminded that we belong to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take and eat the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and drink the blood of Christ poured out for you. When we think of what that really means, that grace that God has shown us, that patience that he has shown us, our reaction should be the first time and every time. What amazing grace that is that he's shown us. And so now as we prepare to close tonight, let us sing Amazing Grace.